episode 49 of Bee Boomer Unleashed, Why Gun Control Won't Stop Gun Violence, Part 7, as we conclude this discussion today. I'm Jerry Lake, the Unleashed Baby Boomer, and I'll be your host for today's episode and for all the episodes of Bee Boomer Unleashed. Before we get into our discussion as we wrap up this topic today, let me, as I always do, remind you where you can find our podcast. You can always find us at beeboomerunleashed.podbean.com. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play at Bee Boomer Unleashed. You can find us on iHeartRadio at b.boomer. Unleashed. You can find our link on Facebook, Spotify, Tumblr, and Instagram at B Boomer Unleashed and on Twitter at B Boomer Unleash One. And as always, we encourage you to drop us an email at B Boomer Unleashed at gmail.com. Once again, that's B Boomer Unleashed at gmail.com. Well, I hope each of you had a great Thanksgiving, a good time uh, with your family and friends, and that you had plenty of turkey and ham or whatever it is that your family likes to eat on Thanksgiving. Well, last week in episode 48, we started in on this eight-point plan for keeping our schools safer, and we went into those in quite a bit of detail, really. And this eight-point plan can be found on americansforclass.org. That's americansforclass.org. That's Andrew Pollack's website, the author of Why Meadow Died. And we went over the first four points of that eight-point plan, and we kind of elaborated on those a little bit last week, but we'll review just those four points. Number one, secure the perimeter. You know, we need to secure the perimeter so that somebody can't just come on and off campus willy-nilly and uh, that they can uh, have someone to check them out before that car actually comes on campus. Then we talked about controlling the flow, and we talked about that not only once school has started, but controlling that flow as students are coming into the schools by having them come through some sort of security check to check their backpacks, to run through a metal detector, whatever it is that you might want to do that needs to be done there to keep our kids safe. Yep, it slows down the line. It creates a little bit of problems for us, and it costs some extra money. But do we want to keep our kids safe, or do we not? Then we talked about protecting the interior with armed guards, uh, including school resource officers, uh, volunteer programs, arming some qualified teachers, uh, having these volunteers volunteer to go in school and and uh, some of them would of necessity even be armed as a as a presence so that the bad guys the evil guys know that there are people in there protecting your children and your grandchildren so that was the first four points secure the perimeter control the flow protect the interior and then develop the school safety volunteer network of those volunteers that we talked about to come in and be a part of that school safety program. The fifth point is to increase parental communication. Streamline and enhance communications with parents during a school safety incident that results in a lockdown or evacuation of the school campus. Now, got to give Cabell County kudos for this. We do have a system called School Messenger, and it puts out a recorded call, an emergency call to anyone who opts into that program to be notified when there's a weather emergency, whether school's going to be canceled early, maybe the power went off or the water was off or whatever, and kids are coming home early. 
that goes out. It also has a module on it, which is probably, I'm going to guess, within a very short period of time, within the next year or so, there won't be as many calls going home, but there'll be more text messages going out because so many people are using text messages now. But there needs to be a way to increase parental communication. And if your school district is not doing that, we encourage you to get in touch with some communication experts that can help you know what's going on at your school if there should be an emergency. For example, if the school's locked down or there's an active shooter incident at your school, parents can really jam up the works by clogging the streets, getting in to keep even police cars from getting in, from keeping safety uh, staff from getting in to help manage this situation, you can create a big problem if you're not in the right kind of communication mode with the school because everybody just goes crazy here. And, And rightly so. Parents are concerned about the safety of their children. And so there has to be some way to communicate with the parents exactly what's going on and what's happening? Are the kids really in danger? Is there just somebody, you know, we've had lockdowns at school many times because somebody, the police were in pursuit of somebody. They weren't in our school, but they were close to the school. So we get a, so we get a notification from the police department and we put the school on lockdown, something called lockdown. Nobody in, nobody out. You no, know, when that message goes out, it tells the parents, look, there's no immediate threat to your students. Uh, there's no immediate threat, but there is an escaped convict. There's somebody that's running from police, from the police in the area or whatever it might be. And they get that message out to you and keep you from going just completely bonkers. When you see on um, local news a helicopter with showing a shot of uh, uh, police chasing somebody through the neighborhood and there happened to be a block from your child's school. So the communication is vital to keep uh, what's, what's going on there. Now, the school also needs to appoint a district school safety specialist. Somebody should be designated by the county as a district school safety specialist to serve as the school district's primary point of public contact for public school safety functions. Now, we have in Cabell County a communications, director of communications. Uh, We have a, a team of people who work on school safety. We have a team who works on disaster response, and that's important. It's important for you to have that, and I'll give Cabell County kudos for that, that we do have people who are involved in keeping our children's safety first and foremost. There's a need to practice these kinds of safety drills, lockdowns, uh, active shooter drills, all different kinds of drills, uh, tornado drills, whatever it might be, any kind of severe weather, any kind of calamity. Maybe, uh, for example, we have a lot of schools in our county that are close to the railroad track. Well, what if a tank car comes by and goes off the track and it's spewing this poisonous gas in the air? What do you do? What, what do you do? There's a procedure in place. You turn off the air handlers immediately so it doesn't suck all this uh, noxious fume into the into the uh, school. You cover doors and windows with an extra layer of plastic. There's a lot of things that you can do to 
uh, mitigate the damages that might occur from some school emergency. A school district safety specialist is in charge of not just all of that, but they're in charge of training everybody in the local schools how to deal with those instances and how to deal with those problems. So does everybody just throw their hands up and they run around if, in circles, you know, like Chicken Little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, do we do that? Or do we have an organized, safely managed approach to each of those situations? And it's important that each school district has somebody in place who can manage those kinds of activities and those kinds of uh, emergencies within the school system. So we got to increase that uh, parental communication. We got to do that. We got to be able to talk to our parents and get the message out to them. I don't know how you go about doing that in your county. Like say in our county, we use school messenger and other things like that to keep our parents abreast of what's going on. And then item number six, appoint a district school safety specialist. And I think you know why that needs to be. Now, increase mental health services. Well, what are you talking about increasing mental health services? Well, provide the training and resources necessary for schools to provide proper mental health services for their students. Why? Why? Well, a lot of these people, these evil people who were involved in these school massacres, really never showed up on anybody's radar because the schools weren't equipped with proper mental health specialists within the school to deal with these kinds of issues. And, you know, if you're going to go in a school and you're going to shoot some people, you're going to kill some people, folks, you've got a mental problem. You've got a mental issue. And it can't just be swept under the rug like so many school districts try to do that. And, uh, you know, these soft discipline policies that we're involved with nationwide that you you oh we this kid has a disability we can't suspend them we can't discipline them and we're not counseling them either we're not trying to find out what makes them tick we're not trying to find out what's going on there in the home that would cause them to act out and do something like that we have to be vigilant of these students with these mental health issues and have an adequate number of properly trained mental health professionals to deal with these kids in a proactive way to keep them from going off the deep end and doing some of the evil things that we see these children doing. Children murdering children, children killing kids, children hurting themselves, children bringing drugs to school, children bringing drug paraphernalia to school, children doing all these kinds of crazy things that never happened to us back in boomer days, but are happening every day, every single day in our school, and we don't have the mental health professionals available in each and every school to, A, train teachers how to recognize some of these mental health issues. Not everybody recognizes that this kid's got some mental problems. This kid's got, you know, uh, something that's wrong with him or her that's causing them not to think correctly. A mental health professional could train staff members to be able to recognize and to deal with some of these mental health issues and know when to call in a mental health professional and say, hey, this kid's got a problem. 
I'm not equipped to handle it, so I need to be able to call in somebody to help this child with this and to help me with this rather than just bury her head in the sand and say, oh, he's just nuts, she's just nuts, you know, we'll just roll the dice, and maybe they won't come in here and shoot the place up tomorrow. Maybe they won't go home tonight and kill themselves. You know, maybe they won't cause harm to other students. We're just hoping and wishing that things would be like they were 50 years ago, but they're not, folks. They're not. And we have kids coming to school with issues today that we didn't have in school back in the 1950s and 60s. As I was, when I was principal, the biggest thing that I noticed that was different about school today and the way it was back when I went to school is the fact you never know who this kid's going to be living with. You know, used to, if you'd call home and talk to someone at home, you were talking to a parent. If the kid's name was Joey Smith, you were going to be talking to Mrs. Smith or Mr. Smith. Now, if Joey Smith gets in trouble, you might be talking to Miss McGillicuddy, uh, Ms. Adkins, Miss Fitzgerald, whoever it might be, and that person might be a foster parent. It could be their mom. It could be a grandparent, it could be an aunt, it could be an uncle, it could be anybody. But these kids, a lot of them basically are homeless. They really don't have a place to call home. They're living with a friend of the family or they're living with a relative. And, you know, to say that that's their home, it's really not their home, but that's where they're laying their head down every night. So we've got these problems that we have today that we're dealing with. And then you've got kids whose parents, let's forget about the kids being addicted to drugs. They've got, they go home to parents every night who are addicted to heroin or pain pills or cocaine or some other form of illicit drug or illegal drug. They're going home to parents who are stoned or they're going home to parents who are high, whatever it might be. You're, they're going into homes where it's really not safe for them to be. And then we wonder why they have these mental issues. We wonder why they have these mental defects when they're going into these homes every day and they see this drug use, they see these crazy things going on. They just want some control over their own life. These kids have baggage that we just didn't have back in boomer days. We just didn't have it. So we need to provide the training and resources necessary for schools to provide proper mental health services for their students. Costs money. <laughs> it costs money. You know, are we going to buy shiny things or are we going to spend money to keep our kids safe? Then each school system needs to establish a school safety hotline. Develop a system which can receive anonymous calls texts, or emails from students about potential threats within a school, this system should be monitored and immediately addressed by the local school district. And I'll give Cabell County kudos on that one, too. They have a school safety hotline. They have a way that students can file complaints or give warnings about students who have erratic behavior, students that they are fearful that might come in and shoot up the school, or they're fearful that they might come in and hurt somebody, 
or they're bringing drugs to school or whatever that issue might be, these students need to have a way to report that. And they do have that in Cabell County. And again, I applaud Cabell County and the superintendent and others for having that uh, in place for students to be able to use. So these are some common sense things that we can do as parents and grandparents and as a school district to help our students remain safe. But it it doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't happen without spending any money. It doesn't happen, you know, just overnight. It's a process that you go through. I listened to Colonel Steve Grossman, who's a school safety expert, and he talked about the difference in school safety over the years and why we don't see people, we don't see students burn up in school fires. Why is that? Well, we prepare for it. We have fire drills. You're supposed to have so many every year, and you've got to log those in. If not, the fire marshal's going to write you up. And here in Cabell County, we had a principal fired one time for falsifying the record on her fire drills. She should have been. Now, you've got to have proper number of fire drills. That's why these kids are never killed in school fires. It's because they practice how to get away from a fire and, and how to react in time of a fire drill. So... The same thing should hold true with the safety drills. Also, most schools today across this country have a high-tech alarm system for fire drills or for fire invasion in the school. And not only do they have that, but they have a high-tech sprinkler system. So, well, what you know? What's a sprinkler system got to do with that? About all this? Well, how do you put fire out? With water, 99% of the time, you put a fire out with water. So the school is equipped. They have spent money on that equipment to put the fire out in case something catches on fire. If the kitchen catches on fire, if the bathroom catches on fire, if a chemistry lab catches on fire, the sprinkler system is going to kick off and it's going to extinguish the fire. They're prepared. We have spent money for that equipment. Let's make a correlation there to school safety. What have we spent on school safety? One school resource officer, that's going to do the trick. We've done our deal. You know, student hotline, that's our deal. Parent communication, that's our deal. That's all we're going to do. We need to prepare for the unthinkable. You know, there aren't many school fires. There just aren't many. You know, it's pretty hard to burn up brick and block most of the time. But there are some school fires. But in the very, you say, well, it's just a waste of money to put all that sprinkler system in and everything. No, it's not. If it just saves one life from one school fire in a hundred years, it's been worth the money spent. So we prepare our schools. We have fire exits. We have fire drills. We have sprinkler systems. We have fire extinguishers on the wall. We have alarms on the wall to pull in case you see a fire or smell smoke. You've got all this stuff that we spent for that we're hoping we never, ever have to use. And most of the time, a school will go 100 years and never have a fire in their school. So why do we spend all that money? Well, just in case we have a fire one time. Most schools will never have a school shooter. 
Most schools will never have evil people come in and murder your children and grandchildren. Most schools, that'll never happen. So what do we do? Just roll the dice, say, well, it's not going to happen here. You know, the chances of that happening are about the same as getting struck by lightning. So we're not really going to worry about that too much. You know, there's no use spending money on extra school resource officers or no no use spending money for district safety specialists or there's no sense spending money for mental health professionals. There's no use spending money for a, for a hotline, a school safety hotline. There's no use, uh, you know, developing this volunteer program for having parents and grandparents come in and be school security and pay for a little bit of training for the teachers to be armed in school. There's no sense in having more than one school resource officer. And then in some instances, we don't even have one school resource officer. We have one school resource officer for several schools. So there's no use spending money on that because the chances of that ever happening here are slim and none. Well, if that's your attitude to school safety, then why do we spend money on sprinkler systems for fire alarms? We've got to prepare for the unthinkable, the unthinkable. And I pray that it never happens to any of our schools here in our county or any other county. I hope we never, ever have another school shooting, a school murder, a school massacre. I hope that never happens again. But in the unlikely event of it happening again, I think it's worth spending money to keep our kids safe. So what do we do? Do we spend money on shiny things or do we spend money keeping our kids safe? You know, I know what I vote for. I vote for spending money to keep our kids safe. You know, we spend a lot of money on programs to quote-unquote enhance learning and our reading scores in West Virginia, for example, just keep going down and down. We pay teachers higher salaries and performance goes down and down. I don't get it. You know, you say, well, you spend all this money on this education, all this programs, and the scores keep going down. Well, you know, a lot of education, kids are affected by a lot of things, and a lot of them are affected differently in many ways. And kids being under the constant uh, threat, knowing that there are crazies out there that they're in class with, and knowing that there are mean kids in that school and evil kids in that school who just might bring a gun to school one day and blast them away, you know, it's pretty hard to study. It's pretty hard to keep your mind on learning how to read and write and do arithmetic problems when you're worried about your own personal safety. So maybe, just maybe, spending a little more money on school safety would enable the kids to feel more comfortable about being in school, and it would increase their school performance. Just a thought, just throwing it out there to you. Well, I think we've talked about this. All we need to talk about it for right now, I'm not saying we'll never bring this topic up again. You know, Mr. Pollock has agreed to come back on the show anytime I want to have him on the show and even do a Q&A session with you folks. And we'll maybe try to get that set up sometime where you can actually call in. We'll run a live stream and uh, you call in and, and talk to him in person or the other guests like him. But that's uh, all worth all the time we're going to spend on that right now. Next week, we're going to, as I promised, we're going to talk about the history of Christmas, and we're going to go way back beyond Boomer days. We're going to go back to the very first Christmas, and we're going to bring it right up to Christmas 2019. 
and see how it's changed and how people's attitudes about Christmas have changed over the years. And boy, I remember back in the boomer days, we really did Christmas up. It was a big thing at school. It was a big time at school. We, you know, had Christmas trees and Christmas decorations and Christmas programs and we sang Christmas carols and we heard the Christmas story and all this kind of stuff, you know, but eh, not so much anymore. Not so much anymore. We've become too politically correct, haven't we? We're going to take you all the way back to the first Christmas, bring you forward, and then on the last episode of the year, we're going to do just a really brief year in review, maybe talk about a few New Year's resolutions. Hey, it's been great to be with you folks this week. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I hope you've got all your Christmas shopping done. Some of you probably like me, maybe you've not even started your Christmas shopping yet. But we appreciate you stopping by today, and we hope you'll tune in next week for more of Be Boomer Unleashed. Hey, have a great week, and may God bless each and every one of you. Goodbye.